This is After School on Core 77. I'm Don Lehman. No redesign affects hundreds of millions of people around the world quite like an update to an operating system. In September, Apple released a doozy. iOS 7 is one of the biggest updates in the company's history, marking the beginning of a new era for its software and for Apple itself. Like anything that has hundreds of millions of people using it, any change, big or small, is bound to cause controversy. But we have the perfect guest to help us sort through iOS 7. Nevin Mergen is a designer and developer at Panic. Over the past 15 or so years, Panic has established itself as the premier Apple indie software developer, releasing wildly successful apps such as Audion, Transmit, Coda, and Statusport. In his spare time, Nevin is also an indie game developer with two iOS games, The Incident and most recently Black Bar, a text-based game about censorship. As you would expect, we have a lot to talk about. Stay tuned. I definitely want to talk about Black Bar and uh, the incident, some of the stuff you have done, and a little bit about uh, Panic as well. Uh, mm-hmm. Because, you know, one of the things I'm interested in is, you know, obviously I'm an industrial designer. I'm doing this for an industrial design website. Mm-hmm. But I love following the world that you're in as well. And a lot of a lot of times, you know, our design paths don't cross really. So I want to kind of introduce some of what you guys do to mm-hmm. industrial design and maybe vice versa. I don't know. Um, but so what I'm what I'm interested in is, you know, talking about the stuff that you guys do, but also talking about iOS 7 a little bit, because I feel like you'll have a really good perspective on it. And I don't really want to do it from a newsy type perspective. I want to do it from like, you know, this is kind of how the design got to where it is, why they're doing what they're doing. You know, and obviously you weren't on Mm -hmm. the team. You don't know everything about that. But with, you know, your experience, you can kind of um, look at something and kind of understand why some of those decisions were reached. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll admit that um, it's I, iOS seven is still a little bit of a puzzle to me, and that <laughs> I'm still sort of trying to trying to understand for myself what its like long term goals are. Yeah. Um, but I, I I think it's also fair to say that it's that way for most people. So I, I you know. Yeah. No. Totally. I, it's 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 kind of really interesting the point it's at right now. Um, so why don't we just kind of launch into it real quick? If you could. <laughs> kind of introduce yourself and talk about your background a little bit and then also talk about panic briefly so people kind of understand what panic is um okay uh do you want me to start with the format of i'm so and so such and such <laughs> yeah i mean that works however you want to do it really <laughs> yeah um I'm Nevin Mergen, and I am a designer at Panic Inc., uh, a small software company in Portland, Oregon. Um, I'm one of the two designers here, and uh, given that we're a software company, I I work uh, largely on software design, uh, which extends to, you know, things like our website, but then also any branding or anything else that's related to the company. Um, In my spare time, uh, I also sort of uh, work on uh, on game design, Um, and as I guess most designers in in my position today do. I sort of 
design things all over the place. You know, all of us do t-shirts and, you know, and then websites and print stuff, uh, all the time. Um, yeah, Panic is a, is a small, uh, software company in Portland. We've been here for like 16 years at this point, I think. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a small company that is sort of kind of family oriented and does things like the slow way. So we're, we're not a startup We're we're not going to explode an IPO. Uh, but then at the same time, it's just a very comfortable place and we make tools that hopefully help people, uh, you know, do things with computers and we're kind of happy to be in that place. Yeah. And one of the th things that you guys uh, focused on early, and I, I don't think you've been at Panic since the beginning. I think you've joined, when did you join Panic? Uh, yesterday was actually my fifth anniversary of joining oh, the wow. company. That's great. And they, yeah, thanks. And they had been around for 11 years uh, prior to that. Okay. But one of the things that they focused on really early uh, was being a Mac-only developer and then eventually kind of branching into doing some uh, iOS stuff. Yeah, um, uh, the company was founded by Stephen Frank and Cable Sasser. And uh, Cable, I think, wrote this piece a long time ago about why they were sort of uh, choosing the Mac platform. Right. Uh, you know, the 90s were, you know, probably not the best time in Apple's history to choose to be a Mac-specific company. Uh, both the, you know, 1980s and the 2000s and the 2010s would have been a better time. But still, they were sort of, it, it, those were the computers that they used. And they felt that if they if they sort of focused that way on a platform that they themselves used and cared about, they could do a better job than if they were just sort of going where the money was. Um, and uh, as for iOS, you know, the, the being being a Mac centric company really means being an Apple centric company. Um, few developers and and users choose you know just Mac over iOS or you know. Uh, or the other way around. Um, I think if, if people like Apple's products, they generally tend to like most of Apple's mainstream products. So mm -hmm. that's how that ended up. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you specifically was because, you know, especially with iOS 7 being this kind of new shift for their UI, really a UI that's kind of existed in some form since OS 10 was introduced back in 2001. Mm -hmm. Um is that I feel like you guys have at times produced a better and cleaner version of Apple's UI. And it's partly, I think, because you've, you're just such fans uh, of the company. You really kind of get what works and, and what doesn't. Um, so, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to say that, you know, I'm, I'm glad that you feel that way. Um, um, what, we, what we try to do usually, uh, I mean, we try to fit the system, fit the OS, fit, fit the, you know, the machine that our software is going to run on. But whenever possible, we look at a thing and, and think, well, is there a way to do this even better without necessarily taking it to a whole new universe? You know, if we're going to redo the toolbar or the button or the slider, can we make it feel at home and be slightly better than Apple's version? If it's not slightly better than their version, then there's no point in, you know, doing that extra work. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess what I, the first question I want to ask is, you know, I, I really wanted to talk about iOS 7, um, but maybe we should talk about iOS just in general before iOS 7 is, you know, did, do you think iOS needed to change? Um, it's, it's an interesting question. There's, there's so many angles you can, you can, you know, approach that from, from a marketing perspective, did it need to change? Like it, did, did it need a refresh in the eyes of the market? 
probably that's sort of never a bad move um from a technological perspective um i i don't think the underlying the underlying technology of it needed to change nor did it change uh you know a lot and then did the design need to change um I think what needed to change was perhaps Apple's approach to their own products. I feel like iOS's uh, core uh, UI was always solid. But when, when iOS 1.0 came out, by the way, I thought it was incredible. That, in my mind, is still like the greatest software release of all time. It's still incredible to me that they shipped iOS 1.0. Um, past that point, I feel like it more than iOS itself, sort of getting a bit off the, you know, off the rails, uh, the design of Apple's apps uh, on iOS was getting loopy. And that's why we were ending up with things like the podcasts app, which was, you know, sort of widely ridiculed for its, you know, overly detailed, realistic and needlessly real world uh, design. Um, you know, the Find My Friends app with its, you know, stitched leather and all that. I feel like uh, a lot of decisions were being made where they were doing the thing that, as I just said, like if you're going to redo a button, redo it because you'll make it better um, in uh, along some dimension. I don't know what. Um, and it's okay if that dimension is like, well, it looks cooler or it looks friendlier, but I feel like they were going way off off the rails there, uh, sort of overdoing that sort of stuff. So I think what, what probably should have happened is a bit of a like, uh, okay, let's everybody just apply the brakes, stop, you know, uh, modeling rich 3D, you know, materials, uh, and textures, uh, and let's sort of get back to basics. And but iOS seven didn't do that. See, that was my expectation, and I, I think iOS seven did did something else. So did it need to change? I think probably not. Probably what needed to change was maybe just a bit of direction on like you know how do we how do we want to present iOS to people without necessarily changing the OS. Yeah, and you know it's interesting is like. You know, you talk a little bit about these textures, and I think people get that con confused with skeuomorphism, and in, in a sense, that's skeuomorphism, but that's not really what skeuomorphism is either. It's really those are just this sort of UI Chrome on top to kind of uh, reference the uh, you know, like in the Find My uh, Friends app, they, they have this leather, but that's not really skeuomorphism. That's just a, a look. Right, right. I mean, Find My Friends is an app, a service, an idea that 10 years ago was impossible and hard to even imagine. So in that sense, it, it, it can't really be skeuomorphic. It's not, it's not talking about anything real from, from the real world at all. Um, it's overstyled. I think a lot of time when people say that something is skeuomorphic or too skeuomorphic, they're, what they mean is it's, it's, the design is, I would just say overdone, overstyled, too, too many effects, too much, too much done to it. Um, yeah. Yeah. You know, industrial designers talk a lot about uh, being true to uh, the materials that we're using. So if, if we mold something out of plastic, uh, you know, we don't want to mold it to look like wood. We want it to look like plastic. And it's, that seems, you know, part of what the complaint was with, you know, some of these textures that just didn't seem true to these newer interfaces. So I'm, I'm wondering from your perspective, what does it mean to be true to the material uh, when you're talking about an interface? Um, I'm, I'm not sure. That's certainly something that we've heard a lot uh, when it comes to iOS 7. And I think it might be one of those, uh, 
one of those principles of design that maybe holds true in industrial design and in print design, certainly, um, but might not be as applicable to, to digital design. I'm not entirely sure what it means for, for a, a digital design to be true to the medium, which is basically nothing, <laughs> which is, you know, a, an abstract theoretical representation. Um, for instance, you know, with, with something like iOS devices, Apple has a good, Apple has control over what those devices are. It's not like third parties are, you know, making these devices. Um, it, they know exactly what screen they'll use. They know exactly what the color temperature will be and all that. Um, so if you're, if you think about something like web design, um, computers in general aren't that different anymore. Uh, but there's still some variance in terms of screen size, uh, you know, color accuracy and whatnot. Uh, so in that sense, it's not it's not totally clear what you're being true to because the the final rendering device does does vary. Um, in Apple's case, you know, the, the phone is the phone. Um, but that said, I, I think the problem for me is that the, the canvas is not just blank. The canvas has no no texture, no uh, no parameters at all. It just it, it's 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 more than blank. It's it's non-existent. So in that sense, saying that you know a, a digital design is true to 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 the digital medium, it, it's not entirely clear to me what that means. I, if I'm, if somebody explained it to me a little better, I feel like, you know, I, I, I might get a grasp on it. Right now, I'm just sort of like backing away and saying, I, I don't know what that means. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a hard concept to try to, specifically when you're dealing with pixels and they can, mm -hmm. I mean, the I guess the medium of pixels is color and they can reproduce any color, uh, you know, essentially any color that they want. And right. I, I guess beyond that, it's like, well, what does it mean to be true to, you know, putting groups of colors together to form an interface, I guess. But um, so there's, I think part of the interesting thing behind this release is there was some, you know, you know internal to Apple uh, conditions going on that kind of made this a more uh, unique release uh, that it might have been. And, you know, I think it's kind of interesting to talk about this stuff because every design is influenced by the internal uh, kind of, maybe not politics, but just sort of the, the structure and kind of what was going on at the time. So, you know, I guess just real briefly, and, you know, the other thing is that we don't know everything that's going on inside Apple because mm -hmm. they're, they're uh, fairly secretive and they like to kind of surprise people with what they're doing and, and they don't talk about the internal structure too much until it becomes, you know, uh, something that they can't not talk about. So anyway, back in the end of 2011, uh, there was a guy who was running Apple's uh, iOS team. His name is Scott Forstall. And from what we know, he was a proponent of the the textures and the kind of the UI Chrome that had um, had become commonplace in both iOS and the Mac. And that became at odds with what uh, some, uh, some other people within the company felt uh, the direction needed to be. And so in no uh, November, he was forced out or he, you know, I guess the line was that he's uh, just stepping aside and Johnny Ive became the VP of design and Craig Federighi became the uh, VP of software engineering. And, and kind of the implication was that, well, 
Johnny Ive wants to take some of the uh, principles that that his team applies to industrial design and start bringing that into the UI and kind of making a little bit more of a uh, harmonious mixture, I guess, of of the two. Uh, did you have any initial thoughts on a non-UI designer leading a UI team? Um, when I first heard rumors of, of, of I've uh, being interested in, in basically directing Apple's UI design, and that was around 2011 maybe, um, I was definitely interested. I mean, Ive is, is an absolute legend when it comes to industrial design, and he seems like a person with good taste. So in that sense, even though, as far as we know, he, he's not experienced with UI design, I certainly was one, wondering what somebody with, you know, good taste would, would do with software, um, you know, on their, on their first go. Um, uh, until the day that they showed iOS 7, I had, I was trying to, to sort of not have very strong expectations. Um, I was hoping I would be surprised. And yeah. I was definitely surprised and I had, but I had sort of like a scenario in my head where I'm like, well, if I had to guess, I think he'll do it like this. And that turned out to be completely false. Um, mm. And well, so in that sense, iOS 7 was, was very surprising. Yeah. What, what were you thinking uh, at first? What kind of were you imagining? Okay. Let's, let's, let's look at it that way, this way. Um, you take iOS 6 as it was the day before iOS 7 was introduced. Uh, I, I was reasonably sure that he would go in and say, okay, let's remove all of this, you know, texture stuff. Uh, you know, let's clean things up. Let's introduce, you know, more pre precise geometry to things. Um, what I didn't expect, like like on a, on a scale of 1 to 10, I thought he would go like to, to 6 out of 10 in terms of, you know, cleaning up. But he went to like 9.9, .9, I feel. So it, I, I felt like the... Uh, the simplification and the flattening of the of the UI was was like way more than I expected, mm -hmm. um, and so at first my 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 first reaction was definitely surprise. I thought, but my first thought was, whoa, this isn't going to work. And what I mean by that is it's similar to what I felt when I first saw a Windows Phone, you know, and now Windows uh, uh, Eight, where I was thinking, you know, geez, I don't know how you how you're going to be able to pull off everything that software has to do. Uh, you know, once you start introducing some real complexity, like with, with something this bare, this stripped down, you're going to start running into problems. And I guess that was my feeling when I, you know, when iOS 7 first came out. Yeah. Well, and then, and then the other thing was that it was such a quick turnaround from when I've took over the group to when right. uh, they introduced uh, iOS 7 back in June. I mean, that was basically only six to seven months the, the timeline I heard was was seven months, and yes, so that's the other thing. I certainly didn't expect that they would redo essentially all of it. I thought they would, that they would do the sort of redesign that in some places is is more uh, detailed than in others, but that there would be large parts of it that could basically stay as as they were. But they definitely didn't do that. And that's admirable that in seven months they managed to sort of like go through all of it. And, you know, it, iOS 7 has bugs. Every release has bugs, but it's certainly not it's not as buggy as I would expect from something that was completely redone um, in such a short time. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I don't know if I can fully appreciate the complexity of designing a UI for, you know, not just an app, but for an entire platform. Uh, I don't, and I, I don't know if you've had experience in, in doing 
that yourself, but I'm wondering if you can kind of shed some light onto, you know, just kind of the, like, right. the implications for even the smallest change. Right. That's, it's, it's crazy. I mean, that's the, that to me is where the real, the real problems and the real challenges and sort of the real wins in, in, in software design are making a single app look consistent within itself is, is easy, but designing a button control or a table control or something like that, or a toolbar that once you design it, that you say, okay, this has to apply to 90% of cases. That's the, the, the real trick. Um, it's, it's maybe in, in terms of like industrial design, it's a bit like designing, uh, 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 like a, like a cable or something like that, that could be plugged into a number of devices and that is going to end up in many places, you know, in the home or, or wherever. Um, it's the sort of stuff that companies that don't really care do a terrible job of because they think it doesn't matter. And companies like Apple who care do their best work in, 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 in that sort of like connected tissue. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a, it's a huge task and you can, you can, tell how complex it is by noticing when it fails. So in terms of iOS 7, for instance, you know, one big change is that they took the standard button, which is, you know, one of the most common controls in, in, in the OS, and they removed its, basically, its, its outlining shape, it's like rounded rectangle shape, and it's, so now it's just text floating uh, in, in space. Um, that introduces so many problems, because now you have to ask yourself, like, when I say problems, I mean, I mean, issues to deal with. I don't mean problems for the user necessarily. Um, but it's like, okay, well, how big is the button? I can't see the button. How far can my thumb actually tap? Do I have to tap directly on the lines that form the word? Or is there like a 10 pixel, you know, margin around it that also works? Uh, what happens when two buttons run into one another? Um, uh, because the button is gone now, the text has to be slightly bigger. Oh, okay. Well, that means that in languages that have longer common words, they're going to start getting truncated earlier. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a million and one, uh, just what ifs and, and edge cases. Um, so yeah, that, that's way trickier than just deciding on what your one app where you, where you, uh, control every aspect of it will look like it's in general, building designs that then have like user generated content pumped into them is the craziest thing. That's why web design is so so much trickier than print design in many cases. In print design, you have like your canvas is of a defined size. And before it goes out to the to the user, you get to decide exactly where everything is. Something like a newspaper has to deal with basically with, with content that gets pumped into pre-designed slots. Uh, but even so, somebody at the end of the day looks over the page and says, okay, this is good. We can we can ship this. And in software, there's very little of that. When Apple makes their mail client, they don't get to control what your emails will look like in your inbox. There's everybody's email has to look good uh, in in their design. So um, that's definitely the it, it's the trickiest part of software design, and it's also the part that I think sort of makes it its own field more than anything else about it. Yeah, yeah, and you know the other thing that I found really interesting, and I've talked to friends who are uh, software developers, and you know these. They haven't necessarily worked at Apple, but the my understanding of how uh, a UI team at a company like Apple is structured is completely different from the way I expected it, um, which is basically like for a company like Apple, the UI team is not one team like the way the industrial design team 
is. There's these kind of different breakdowns of people along the process. So there's like a human interface group that kind of deals with these very sort of larger functional ideas. And then there's also, and then at some point they're, um, they, you know, they kind of outline how uh, something should work. And then the graphics people will come along and kind of start to apply the look and feel to that. Is that the, is that the way you understand um, it has changed a little bit with iOS 7, uh, is my understanding. Uh, uh, I'm, I'm basing this on what I've heard from people at Apple and, you know, sort of third hand, so it, it may not be 100% true. But prior to iOS 7, or rather prior to, to Ives uh, taking over of the UI director role, which didn't exist before that, um, the way it would work is, is you had the, uh, the, 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 the HI, the human interface team, which was basically in charge of making sure that all of those global pieces that apply to the to the system as a whole, that that they're good. And uh, anything that's sort of the like the basic underlying core functionality and design of the system was going through them. Uh, the the graphic design team was in charge of mostly things like you know marketing, website, uh, the store designs, uh, packaging, things like that. Um, and then each each product, for instance, uh, the iWork team or the uh, the iTunes team, they had their own designers who would implement everything that's basically specific to their own product. They would design their own uh, product icon. They would design all the toolbars, all the icons within the app, uh, everything like that. Um, there's of course a little bit of back and forth with the with the human interface uh, team just to make sure that things aren't getting you know completely crazy. Um, but that was how it worked. After after I've sort of uh, invented and took over the uh, sort of you know, I'm going to call it UI director. That's not what it's called, but that that's the essential function. Sure. Um, after he took over that role, yeah, my understanding is that basically uh, there's like almost like a like an art director role that that the graphic design team now takes over, and so they give everyone everyone else sort of. Uh, like template designs of like this is this is the icon for your app and this is the basic like look and feel of it this is how it should be and then others are in charge of sort of implementing that almost as a style sheet to the rest of the design um it's probably a bit closer to how the industrial design team works and how uh say like yeah like 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 print design works um and it's definitely different than how they've been doing things so far i don't know which one is better we're way too like it's too early in the process yet to know like in five years we'll see if, if that works better or not yeah yeah it's totally not surprising to me that i've would do that because i mean like you said that's sort of the way more of the an industrial design team is set up and just the idea of splitting sort of the functional side of your brain from the visual side of your brain is a very foreign concept for industrial designers because i mean they're just you know, form is function, you know, it's, it's sort of, yeah, it's sort of, and I, I, I don't know how you guys work at panic. Is it similar to, to that where you're giving functional and aesthetic feedback at the same time? Um, panic is a small enough company that our, uh, our, our process sort of works well for us, but I'm not sure how, you know, it definitely doesn't translate to a company like Apple. Right. We are a company of 16 people and we have two designers. Cable Sasser, one of the, one of the co-founders of the company is sort of like the, you know, also head designer and sort of product 
manager for the company and then i'm i'm another designer uh we work basically by sort of outlining the 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 well, let's start what, what's before functionality i guess the idea like what is this app what is this what does this app aim to do before we talk about how it does it so sort of we discussed that then we discussed you know how what's the best way to sort of make that functionality happen and then we sort of drill down all the way down to like drawing the actual pixels that go into the app um so for the most part we'll sort of sketch it out well sketch is not the right word we sort of do the opposite of, of sketching we we produce very detailed mockups for the engineers. Um, one of the reasons we can do that is that our engineers also have a great eye and they're very design friendly and design aware. So um, if if Cable and I happen to sort of just make a, a dumb assumption about some part of the functionality, very early on in the process, the engineers will sort of go, hold on, this isn't going to work. So it's not like we end up in a situation where we design something, they implement it, it comes back, it doesn't work, and then they have to say, well, that's how you designed it. That never happens. Um, it's also a small enough company that there's a lot of back and forth. So nobody goes like three months implementing something that turns out not to work because we'll know in three days if it if it works um, or not. And then Cable and I, while we're definitely not programmers, we, we both have enough programming chops that we sort of have half an idea of what will work and what won't. If you work with like uh, designers who have never had any programming background and they try to uh, design software, they'll often design things that don't, designs that don't ask the what if question, where by looking at it, you immediately go, well, hold on, what happens when you scroll past that point? And that's something that, that didn't occur to them. So uh, yeah, I think Cable and I both have an, enough programming understanding that we sort of avoid that problem. Yeah, that that's by the way what's interesting to me with with the the new restructuring uh, at Apple. Um, you have graphic design people now sort of directing down uh, software designs, at least in some small sense. And I'm wondering if there are if they ever run into issues where basically the 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 people who are implementing it have to go back up the chain and say, well, hold on, that's not going to work because of this software concern that you're not aware of. Um, I have a feeling that they're aware of that issue and that they're dealing with it in that the, the graphic design team is probably mainly communicating like, yeah, again, like style sheet type issues. Like, you know, these are the colors, this is the sort of weight that we want for the design rather than like, this is how it should be structured in terms mm. of its functionality. Yeah, well, I mean, it's interesting because that's always the impression I've got of the ID team is that they really kind of, lead the direction of not just the look, but a lot of the functionality, a lot of the um, interaction of, of the hardware. And that, you know, I mean, obviously that has implications uh, for the engineers, but that, that there's so much power for the design group there that they basically, if it, if it, there comes to be an engineering issue, a lot of times it'll get resolved from a design perspective less than a engineering perspective and i wonder if you can kind of yeah yeah i don't know i don't know if force is the right word but kind of force that mentality down through software yeah yeah it's it's definitely interesting i mean i think i think apple's industrial design team just generally it does excellent work it's it's a smallish yeah. team i know that it's it's way fewer people than, than do software design at Apple. Yeah. Um, and so from that follows that they're also all like A-level people probably, right? Um, and so 
they probably do good work overall. Um, that said, it's interesting to me when they have slight slight failures that sort of reveal not not quite the problems, but just sort of the artifacts that you get from the team being so isolated from the rest of Apple and sort of doing things on their own, which again produces great work 99% of the time. But one one story that I heard was you might remember this when the first iPhone came out, um, the headphone jack pretty much only fit Apple's headphones because it was unusually narrow and long. Yeah, it was in, so, it was inset into the case. Right, exactly. So yeah. your headphone jack had to be of the sort that was no wider than the than the uh, narrowest point on the on the on the jack. And um, I heard that, you know, af after Apple introduced the iPhone and they sort of uh, started showing some around the company to the rest of them, somebody walked up to one of the ID people and said, hey, I can't plug my Sony headphones into it. And he's like, what do you mean? It's just a standard headphone jack. And then he looked at it and he tried and he went, oh, no. And and the the story that I heard said that basically the industrial design team had been working with, you know, iPhone prototypes and iPhones in their lab for, you know, years but all they had around the lab were basically Apple headphones. And so it just never came up that they would try plugging in, you know, another <laughs> pair of headphones because that's also the team that's making the headphones. They, they want to make sure that those are good headphones. Um, so it just never came up. And that, that on a very tiny level strikes me as the sort of thing where like you're, you're, you're working in a, in a sort of a bubble and then a, a sort of an outside world concern pops in and you're like, oh, my design never really, you know, predicted that. Uh, usually they avoid that, but it, it happens sometimes. Yeah. I, I don't know if you saw the um, the story that's in the New York Times today. That there was an engineer who worked on the uh, the antennas for the original iPhone and just kind of, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if you remember that demo back in 2007 when Steve Jobs introduced the original iPhone and just how... Uh, narrow a thread that they were trying to uh, or how narrow a needle they were trying to thread to kind of get it to work right just because they had uh, it was a, the software was in a very rough state the whole thing was in a very rough state um, right because it was just no one had ever done that before and so it was you know basically held together with uh, duct tape and popsicle sticks at that point just to get that demo going but it, it doesn't surprise me at all to hear that that because there were so many just variables in play when you're creating that that very first uh, that very first phone. Right, right, and like it's not I'm, uh, the the next thing I'm going to say is going to make it seem like software design is harder than industrial design. That's definitely not what I what I think. Sure. But that 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 moment of oh my headphones won't plug into the headphone jack. Software design has a hundred times more of those moments because there's more user stuff being integrated with your stuff uh, than there is in 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 industrial design. I think um, you know when you're designing an iPhone, you have to make sure that it fits into your pants. Well, into the pocket of your pants. Well, ninety nine percent of pockets out there are about the same. But when it comes to software design, I don't know what percentage of emails are of the same length or in the same language or whatever like things are just way more spread out like that there's, there's kind of more variables at play uh, at times so in in that sense it can definitely be trickier to guess uh, you know how is this going to work for instance at at, uh, at panic we make an uh, an ftp app called transmit um so it lets you basically upload and download files between servers on a kind of a uh, it's something that a web developer would use or somebody who's sort of moving large amounts or, or large numbers of, of files. Um, it's used by like recording studios, photographers, people who need to move a serious amount of files. Yeah, no, I um, love, I love Transmit. I use it all the time. Yeah. 
Thank you. Um, so one one problem that we have with it is you would think that something like FTP, it's 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 file transfer protocol. When you hear the word protocol, you think that means okay, people agreed, you know, this is all written up, it's documented, this is how it works. But it's it's not that way at all. FTP is very old; it dates back to the 1970s, I believe. And since then, every FTP server in the world basically has implemented its own subset of you know things that they support that nobody else does, and so. Transmit the app basically has a million of these little what ifs in it that go like, okay, if the server supports this, then we can also do this. If it does that, then we have to translate this this way. So it, it's it's just a bunch of basically cases where we're <laughs> making sure that it works on every single server out there. And you know, even today, 15 years later, we're still getting emails where like, hey, when I try to connect this server, it won't do it because you know the password is not sent the way that it expects it. Um, and that's basically also why why software needs updates all the time. Uh, <laughs> unlike, you know, uh, hardware gets updated, you know, on a yearly basis or whatever. Um, but less frequently you could still have i mean i still have a you know a walkman probably that would work just fine today uh in 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 the software world if you have a piece of software from 10 years ago that you can still functionally run that's like that's magical it's miraculous yeah yeah um so let's, i want to talk a little bit about some of the uh the details in ios 7 because that's really kind of where you kind of see some of the kind of the thought process behind where they wanted to go with this with this release um, so I, let me, I guess just start with one, uh, using, uh, the Helvetica Noe, uh, ultralight the way they do. I have a theory about why they chose it, but I wanted to know what your opinion was on, on, on its use. So, uh, uh, First thing, just to clarify, is that, that when they first showed iOS 7, uh, like the first beta of it that was released in June, it used Helvetica Noel Lite for most of the like body copy, um, you know, in emails, uh, um, in messages, in notes, and things like that. And then uh, in, maybe in beta 2 or 3, they switched it to Helvetica Noel regular, like this, or the average weight, and they've kept it that way since. Um, they still use light and ultralight for very large type. So, for instance, the uh, the clock display on the lock screen is, I believe, ultralight, just because it's like 140 point text or something like that. So they've 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 backed away a bit from the from the light as body uh, copy font, and I'm glad that they did. Um, I don't know. I don't know that I have a theory. Um, I think when whenever I look at uh, Ives hardware design. Yeah. He always does does it kind of <laughs> very thin. For instance, when I first saw the volume up and down uh, buttons on the iPhone four, the first one that was sort of the uh, you know the the metallic kind, um, I thought, wow, those are very thin icons. Basically, if you were doing these as software icons, they would definitely be a bit chunkier. Um, do you have a theory as to why that is? Well, no, I mean you just hit it right in the head, and that's that. You know, in industrial design, we our icons are used only very sparingly and only like on an as needed basis. So for example, like I think that the, the volume is like a great example of that is um, we just don't need one. We want to get it out of the way because you don't use it as much as you need to interact with the on-screen interface. So to do that, we make it as thin and, and light as possible 
to kind of, you know, let it kind of fade into the background because sometimes you're going to you're going to look at that button but you may, might not look at the the plus or the minus for the volume and you kind of just want that to fade. The other thing is that we're working with atoms and uh and you can have uh, reflections in the light and it'll look bigger than it'll actually feel. Right. You know, so but with you know some of the instances of iOS 7's kind of lightness it's like you're working with a single pixel and so you don't you don't have that interplay with the light the same way that we do but yeah we use a lot of thinner stuff just to kind of get it out of the way like especially you, you look at like a camera a lot of the graphics on there will be very kind of light because you don't you just don't want to reference them all the time sometimes you just want to press the button and take a picture uh and so but the graphics are always going to be on the you know, when you print or you engrave a, a graphic, that is always going to be there. So you want it to kind of have this transient quality to it. And so I, I think that was the idea was that if you use these thinner uh, elements, you know, they can kind of fade in and out and let you focus more on the content. But that's it. Yeah, sorry, go on. But I don't, I don't think that that works as well for an interface because really you need, you need a, a font to help direct you to where you need to be looking at that moment and that font can you know you can use as you know bold and light and regular to kind of organize information in a much clearer way and i don't know if they kind of went as far as they needed to do to help organize that information on the screen i, I think you made a great point just looking at the up, uh, volume up volume down buttons right now uh, i was thinking well when's the last time that you actually looked at them like when you got your phone, you probably noticed them and every now and then you notice them. But it's not like when you want to increase the volume, you go, let's see, which one of these has a plus on it, right? Right. Um, so I, I think, A, physical devices, especially the iPhone, have fewer buttons than software does. And that doesn't mean fewer buttons at a time because, you know, like a... a Oh, like a 1990s piece of hardware, like a, like a Walkman or something like that. That did have like a total of 12 buttons maybe. And an average app might have a total of 12 buttons. But the thing is, you don't have one app on your phone. You have like, I think the average right now is like 80 apps for a phone. Your phone is all of those apps. And the thing is, you cannot rely on things like muscle memory or, or tactile feel of the button or sort of natural instinct to know what each button will do. You do actually have to scan it with your eyes and go, okay, this button does that. Um, so in that sense, yeah, I, I think you're right in that it might have been sort of a, an industrial design assumption that got carried a little bit too far in the, in the world of, a, of software. Yeah. Uh it's... You know, or like take, for instance, you know, let's say it's the 1980s or 90s and you have a VCR, um, you know, you have to you hit stop, you hit rewind, you hit play. But you hit those things like three times within the two hours that you watch a movie and that's it. Phones are not like that. I tap my phone a 100 times an hour at least. So, yeah, I can't. I, I do need those things with like millisecond precision. I need to be able to read them right away. And if that makes the, the UI overall look a little less harmonious and like a still screenshot, well, so be it. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Well, it's funny because, you know, I, if I think to great print design, even, I mean, like clearly the look has been inspired by some of like the classic modernist print, you know, work from mm -hmm. like the sixties. And, you know, th there's, there's such a, there's an interplay of, organizing content there as well where you do have more of a, a a mix and match of you know using bold for 
to call something out using, you know, like a regular for, you know, just lots of copy and, and light for things you don't need to look at as much. And it, it, there's, yeah, there just doesn't seem to be enough um, variation in that to kind of help you digest the information quicker. It's a bit like maybe, maybe software, especially on a phone should be thought a, a bit of a bit like like the cereal aisle for instance um if you ever go to the aisle at the store like like at target i think they have this where it's mostly store brand products like the store brand especially targets is very tastefully designed it's like mostly white packaging and then they'll do sort of in very clean type they'll explain what it is and they might use a single graphic to identify what it is so from a store brand perspective that makes total sense you do not want your designers spending all day designing separate packaging for each product you want to create a style sheet a nice little style guide then a nice template and say okay this is where you type in the name of it you change the colors you change the graphic and and you're done um the problem however is that if you fill the whole aisle with those products if I'm walking through it, I can't tell what's soap and what's toothpaste and what's cereal and what's milk. Um, it all sort of ends up looking looking the same. Whereas if you're in the cereal aisle, you know what Captain Crunch looks like and you know what the healthy granola looks like because they're they're immediately different when you first glance at them. Now that means that a lot of them are over-designed. I'm not trying to say that cereal box design is great or that that's how apps should be done. Just like the Find My Friends app had leather, you know, and all that. Uh, so, like, a lot of today's cereal boxes are just overdone. Gradients and explosions everywhere and crazy characters and too many colors. Um, but I understand why it ends up that way, just because you do want things to be distinguishable. Yeah. Yeah. You wrote a, a really great uh, piece on iOS 7's icon grid. And this is something that was introduced for iOS 7 that uh, basically every icon, kind of like the way you think of using a grid in, in, in print design or, or web design, or really any sort of graphic design to kind of structure information, Apple is now using this uh, icon grid to help uh, make or some rational decisions about um, designing icons. And... I, what I thought was gr interesting about your piece was that you said that you thought that their grid uh, was wrong. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm glad you used the word great when you first introduced it and not terrible because I've heard both. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a very subjective piece, and I, I hope I tried to convey that that this is my opinion and the opinion of other designers that I've talked to. Um, there's no, there's no ruler against we hold their grid and then go, okay, it's right or it's not right. Um, yeah. yeah, I feel like... And I don't think, well, before I, before we go too far, I was like, I thought it was great because I thought it was very kind of intellectually sound and not that you were right or wrong, whether it looked wrong, but I thought that you made some really great points. So sorry about that. Oh, no, 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 absolutely. Yeah. I'm, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah the, the, the thing is, if you, if, if, if you take a square or rather like a kind of a round rect shape for the icon, you could draw a number of different grids on it. Right? You could just split it into nine uh, equal sized squares. That's a grid. You could split it you know, in, in, in halves, have like you know, half vertically and horizontally. That's a kind of grid. You could overlay those two. That's a grid. You could split it in a five by five grid. You could do some sort of a golden ratio you know, thing. There's no right grid to pick. There's just a number of them. And so you just have to pick one that you think looks good. And I've picked what looked good to him. And that's, that, that's what he should have done. Of course, that's what anyone would do. But I think that the one that he picked is maybe not the most helpful because the 
the, the, the largest shape in it, like the largest circle in it, which is like where a typical shape should fit, is to my eyes far too large. So that icons sort of approach the border of their container too closely to, to, to a point where to me it's sort of uncomfortable. Like when things are almost touching in design, it can be, it can be kind of irritating. Yeah, the negative space feels a little off if it's the first time you've seen that icon. Right, right, definitely. Yeah. And I'm, so I guess what I'm wondering now is, is since you've looked at these icons, I'm, I'm assuming you've kind of been using the developer beta since June or, you know, just kind of looking at them at least. I wonder if your opinion has changed at all. And I wonder if it's just the familiar, if maybe the familiarity of that grid or just seeing those icons, if you've kind of been evolving your opinions of it. Um, it has not changed in that I would still make them smaller. Um, I mean, I can live with it. I guess there's that sort of familiarity where now, like, I'm not complaining about it as loudly as I was on day one. But no, it's not how I would do it if I was doing it again. Yeah. Um, there's also the, the other thing about it that that's that, that I, I don't think I conveyed in my blog post is if let's say you draw a star, a star is a shape that has like a five pointed star. It has five pointy outy, you know, sort of uh, uh, points, it, it's pointy. So if those points touch the outside of the like, uh, um, of the bounding circle, that's fine. But if you have a shape that's very full, like a, like a bubble or a cloud, um, and then that touches the outside, it feels bigger, right? It's the same way when you when you're, you know, designing type, like the, uh, the letter O can be a little bit bigger than, than another letter because it, it can sort of step outside of the baseline uh, because you can't just align things to, to the grid uh, uh, because they're, they'll optically look different. And I feel like with I've, you know, putting this grid in front of everyone and saying design to this grid, people are going to feel tempted to just snap things to the grid and that's not going to look right no more than it would look right to design a, a typeface where basically each character touches the baseline and the X height perfectly. You have to make optical adjustments to make sure the things look right. Yeah. Um, so I, I wonder is uh, how iOS 7, maybe, has there ever been a name that's been given to the UI for iOS 7? Maybe I should ask that real quick. No, and and since since like Aqua, which was sort of the name for the for the uh, OS ten design, I don't think Apple has ever given names to any of their design styles. Yeah, uh, even internally, I don't believe they have a name for it. I've been adding the the word I've to things, so like like an icon will be an I've con and whatnot. Uh, <laughs> that doesn't matter. That's just an internal thing. Yeah. Um, most people say designed for iOS 7 or iOS 7 style or something like that. Eventually, a year from now, it won't matter. It'll just be the iOS design style. Yeah, or the iOS 8 design style, because I'm sure it'll, or, yeah, it'll evolve. Or... I can't wait to see what happens there. Yeah. yeah, yeah, when they have a full kind of year to kind of look at it this time. Well, well, especially because Ives team seems to me like a team that's used to basically reinventing their products on like a two or three year uh, schedule. So I wonder what happens next year or in two years if they go, okay, let's let's you know redo a large chunk of this now again. Who yeah, knows? maybe. Yeah, well, it's interesting because you know, in some ways, iOS seven is sort of sort of late and too early at the same time. Yes, because you know. 
I think the ideal time to introduce it would have been back in uh, when the iPhone five came out. I think when they had a couple years playing with Retina, and mm-hmm. and it would have been a, a smart time to kind of you know put this new line in the sand. But because they waited so long, I think that there was this urgency to kind of to do something. Um, but maybe they didn't give themselves enough time to do the job that 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 maybe you or I would have expected just in terms of the polish of uh, of, yeah. uh, of, of, of an OS of this level. I mean, it's definitely been a totally different development cycle for them than ever before. Um, uh, in terms of betas of iOS 7 between the first beta and what shipped, it changed a lot. And for the better, to their credit, like almost, not almost, all the decisions that they made since the first beta have been for the better. So that that fills me with a lot of optimism for the future of iOS. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I had heard, and this is just speculative, that I've had wanted to to sort of redesign both Mac OS and iOS a few years ago, but that that didn't really his idea didn't really impress Steve Jobs. Uh, and so, you know, that that sort of explains why now was the time for, for it to actually end up happening. Um, yeah, I, I know exactly what you mean by too early and too late. It, it should have coincided with the uh, like iPhone 4 uh, hardware design. Cause yeah, it's definitely designed to that for aesthetic. retina. Yep. Yes, yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I'm wondering now, since, it, you know, it's kind of obvious this 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 language is going to be evolved in a year from now. I think a lot of the kind of the stuff that sticks out as being kind of interesting or odd is going to be smoothed out. You know, I, it's kind of hard for me to, you know, look at iOS 7 as a designer because I can understand all of the insane amount of work they did in six months. And in that, it's like an, an enormous achievement. But then it's also a shipping product that you know, people are using and, and they don't have that same context and or really care. So, you know, they kind of have to evaluate it for themselves just, you know, on a day to day basis. But I'm, I'm wondering how um, this new kind of philosophy of of iOS 7, which is surely going to transfer over to the Mac uh, at some point in the future. I wonder how that's changing your approach to designing interfaces. Um, I had, I guess... In the in the last like yeah five years, uh, I, I guess I've been sort of exploring my own kind of aesthetic that like doesn't feel super foreign on macOS or on iOS, but isn't stock UI either. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, I feel like I can just keep going in that direction in the future. Um, I can of course borrow certain cues from iOS seven, but I don't feel any need to like make my designs a hundred percent iOS seven style. For instance, I'm not I'm not really happy with the super thin icons as we discussed. For instance, in, in iOS Safari in the toolbar, the, the all the icons are sort of very thin square shapes. And I'm not a fan of that. And I'm not going to switch the drawing icons of that style. So that's not something I feel I have to do. Um, so I feel like there's still a lot of room. Let's put it this way. I think you could make an app today that looks nothing like iOS 7, but that feels like a good, uh, you know, uh, aesthetically pleasing app on iOS 7 and would have felt that way on iOS 6 as well. Um, especially since in, in the last like two years, 
there, there hasn't been basically a single popular iOS app that used the stock UI. Pretty much everyone is doing custom UIs at this point. Things like Instagram and Vine and the official Twitter app and the Facebook app, none of them look like iOS stock UI. They're drawing their own everything. That's partly because they're becoming cross-platform apps and they have to have cross-platform consistency. So it's just turning out to be kind of a better idea to just do your own UI kit that is good as long as it's not like wildly out of sync with the platform. Yeah, no, totally. Um, so we, we went way longer on iOS seven <laughs> stuff than I was anticipating. And I, there's like all this stuff I want to talk to you about black bar and with panic. Do you have like 20 more minutes? Is that going to kill you or? Yeah, yeah. If 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 oh. you're okay having an extra twenty minutes on the podcast. Oh yeah, no. This you know, that's <laughs> that's the great thing about podcasts. It's just sort of like yeah, you know, when it's done, it's done. <laughs> sure. Um, so, um, and maybe just as a quick segue, at Panic, you guys just did a new logo, and I'm guessing that you and uh, Cabell had been working on this for some time because I saw a kind of an in a intermary logo that you had done, and now this seems to be the more final logo which and it's it's really really uh nice i want to just kind of wondering you know what were your influences for the change and kind of how you got to to where you did um the old logo has been around since the mid 90s and uh, while i certainly didn't think it was bad it was starting to date um it was also maybe a little out of sync with like today's design sensibilities and with the sort of applications that we need out of our logo today. So yeah, we definitely have been feeling for like maybe two years, like we should change it. However, it's one of those big things. Like we're not Nike or Apple. Changing our logo isn't a big deal, but to us, it's a it's a big deal. Um, so yeah, it's it's been at least two years that we've been sort of toying around with different ideas. Um, and it's tricky because we we got in that loop that I'm sure every designer is aware of with a logo where you come up with an idea and you're like, this is perfect. This is such a clever take on like either our name or what we do. And it's such a simple shape and it's so good. And then three seconds later, you're going, and it's so good that it must have been done a hundred times already, <laughs> which with a logo is very important. Um, you know, it, it it's you can't just sort of brush off the concern that somebody else has done this, the same exact idea before. Um, so there's definitely this struggle between, uh, you know, it has to be original and it also has to be sort of obviously good. Um, so towards the end of the process, we were sort of letting ourselves just get totally wacky with the, with the ideas. And so at one point we were just sort of drawing pixel logos, essentially like on a, on a scale of like seven by seven pixels. And that's where that P shape came out of that. That's in the current, uh, in the current logo. And then we sort of just ended up messing around with, you know, that looks cool, but it also looks kind of dull and square. It needs a little bit of, uh, organic nature to it. You know, then we are thinking about like flower shapes. Um, yeah, that, that was the process. I mean, it was just the sort of thing that we would kind of revisit every few weeks you know, whenever an idea pops into your head. And then eventually, you know, we were looking at a few of them, all of which were fine. And we thought, yeah, you know, this one's good. Let's try it. We tried one version of it just sort of in, a, in an email that we sent out a few weeks ago. And then since then, we kind of kept toying with that. And 
it it's it it was probably a tough decision for cable to to make to finally just sort of like be okay with it and ship the new one. Oh sure. But then like in one day we we were just sort of like okay this is the one and now we're gonna go and change it on the website and on all our letterhead and in the office and everywhere so like this is it now now there's no going back. Um, I'm really glad that that we did it. I I think the new one is great. I think it's gonna you know last us a long time. Yeah, and it totally has that you know what you were just saying earlier about designing for iOS 7 but not really designing for iOS 7 kind of feel right. to it where it feels you know it's it's unique thing it, it's going to look great like I'm I, you've never really put your the panic logo on any uh icon you've done for uh an app but I could totally see it working there and looking great in iOS 7 and looking great in really any kind of any situation so uh, yeah and I think it looks nice yeah, thanks. Yeah, th that was the goal. And again, yeah, it, it, if we want to style it for iOS 7, it'll look fine because it's kind of flat based on a simple shape. We just do two colors. It works. If we want to put it on our current website, which sort of has some, you know, uh, uh, drop shadows and gradients and stuff to it, it looks good there, too. So mm -hmm. I'm happy with that. Yeah. So uh, I, I, let's talk about Black Bar because this is such a cool game and it's like so dead simple that you're kind of like, why hasn't someone done something exactly like this before but it's just it's so and there's so much depth to it too for how simple it is so uh maybe you can explain what it is first okay um here's my pitch black bar is is an ios game uh, iphone game um that is a text adventure but not a text adventure in 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 the sense of like zork or the classic text adventures that give you a prompt where you you know type in go north or open mailbox or something like that uh, when you launch the game, you're presented with a white screen with black text on it. There's basically no styling to it. Um, it it's it's a letter from someone. And the, the, the letter is kind of written to you. It's just like two paragraphs. And then the last word in it has been redacted. It's been censored. It has like a black rectangle over it. Um, from that and from the, the following letters, you can sort of extrapolate that this story takes place in a sort of a dystopian either future or like parallel uh, history um where basically all like personal communication is is overseen by someone and redacted um and so the entire game consists of you going from you know one letter to the next and basically typing in the words that have been redacted. Once you've typed them in successfully uh, all of them on on a page you can proceed to the next letter and through doing that you basically read a story as one of the characters in it. You're one of the two characters who are who are writing letters to each other. So that's that's Black Bar. Yeah. How did you come up with the idea? Um, I had been thinking about. I, I guess I thought of the mechanic first because what popped into my head, and I'm sorry about this cliche, but it totally happened in the shower. Um, <laughs> was was the idea of a letter that has a redacted word in it and like in my mind i wanted to click on it and type into it just from sort of from the idea of like th that that black rectangle looking like a text field you know S something in my brain saw that and thought that if you typed into it you would be typing white text over the black and then from that i thought well that's interesting and and, and my first instinct was that's too simple you can't really it, it's just a guessing game you're just guessing words but then I, I wouldn't let it go. And I was thinking, OK, well, what if you're not just guessing? What if the clues are basically 
different ways that fiction can put ideas in your head and sort of withhold information and share it when needed. Um, so it's things like, well, sometimes you can guess it from context. Um, sometimes you can guess it from what the previous letter said. Sometimes you sort of just have to guess. Like if, 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 if a text box is two characters long and it refers to a number of hours that somebody has done something, well, it can only be so many things. People don't do things for 99 hours. That's not humanly possible. Uh, and it has to be more than 10. So just try, you know, maybe it's 11, maybe it's 12, maybe it's 13. Uh, so anyway, th th there were a number of different uh, puzzles like that. And I was like, well, you know, maybe maybe there's enough there. And then I was sort of thinking about, you know, where where was where were censorship, uh, you know, in redaction, where, where was that a thing? And I was thinking about like, you know, uh, like uh, the Soviet Russia and like the U.S. around that same like Cold War time and like like military correspondence has traditionally always been overseen by someone, and then the story sort of emerged from that. Yeah, and you also wrote the story, correct? Yes, yes. I I, I wrote the story and I designed the puzzles and I sort of made the you know like the prototype version of the app, which sort of told the whole story and then when i was done with that when i was happy with it i handed it off to my friend uh, james moore who made the ios app version because once again i'm a terrible programmer he's a good programmer so he could actually make sure that it worked well yeah how did you go about uh testing the the game mechanics because there's some interesting stuff in there that you you kind of only can do once you're actually on the phone yeah, I'm almost embarrassed about how simple the game is from a code perspective. So the first thing that I wanted to do was I just sat with my laptop after, you know, I first had the idea and just sort of wrote the, the first page and the code necessary just to proceed. And I found it really satisfying to tap that box, you know, type in the word and then, it, you know, it says, okay, you know, uh, you got it. And so I got, I got addic addicted to uh, designing more of them. Um, Nowadays, it's fairly easy, especially since it, it was okay. So it was prototyped as a web app. It was all done like in HTML and JavaScript. Uh, it's fairly easy to just write that on your laptop and just reload it on your phone. That worked just fine. Um, so I, I started with that, and so yeah, it was it was really easy to test, and again, like addictive to keep writing for it. Yeah, there's a there's a real moodiness to the to the app, which is. Um, I guess it's surprising. Maybe it's not surprising, but it's, uh, you know, for being this, you know, kind of typewriter monospaced font and, uh, using, you know, it's really just the story and the, and the font and, and the use of color, but there's a real moodiness to it. And I wonder what kind of vibe you were trying to achieve with, uh, with the game. So for those who haven't seen it, it's it's literally just black text on white. There's no paper texture to it. The text is not distressed. Those were all ideas that I had and promptly threw away because I was thinking that that doesn't matter. That's not going to make it any better or any worse. And so I wanted to make it completely like device agnostic. Like it's just text that could be appearing on paper or on a computer screen or whatever. Um, and I think that making that decision early on also influenced the, the the world in the story in the game, because it kind of is claustro it's claustrophobic and it has this uh, utilitarian nature to it uh, that in my mind is very much like Cold War or like Soviet design 
Uh, that, that's how we all think of like 1950 Soviet design, right? It's just like, it's these big boxy things that just do the thing they do and there's nothing pretty or, 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 or decorative about them. So that's what I wanted to do with the game. One reason that I think that works well on, on iPhone is that few other things on there look that way. Like if you compare the app and the app's icon and its screenshots to other games in the store, it's from a different universe. Nobody draw. Nobody makes games that look quite like that. Like even the minimalist games will look pretty because the shapes will be circles and squares. There's nothing duller than like courier font on white. Um, and I was actually kind of like perversely proud of that <laughs> that that it had to stay. I wouldn't say ugly. It's not ugly. I didn't want to make it ugly, but it's bare. It's it's like the like the book or the movie The Road, where like there's nothing left. All that's there is just words, and you're gonna have to you know make sense of the world that way. Yeah. When um so when I'm looking at the app, am I looking at is that actual text that's been entered in into the uh, interface, or is that like a JPEG that you you know, converted to a screen or is it like a vector image or what, what, are, what am I looking at? It's, it's text. That's a standard iOS text view that just has some text typed into it. I think we've turned off all the pasteboard controls so you can't, you know, tap to select it and all that. Right. It's just text. And then in the middle, you know, every now and then there's a text box, which is the, the, the black bar over text. And, uh, and that's it. It's, it's really remarkably simple. It's, it's as simple as you think. Yeah. But, but again, there's just so much depth to it. It's, it's kind of, uh, it's super impressive for, you know, what you're able to get out of, of, of that. I'm, I'm glad you feel that way. And I feel like it's also a bit of a ninjutsu move to sort of make something so simple because I swear the human brain starts to invent things that aren't even there. You know, uh, it's a fairly short story. I'll be the first one to say that, but people talk about, you know, everything that happens in it and like i think that actually comes from from how how simple it is like your brain kind of fills in everything else yeah now you've also developed another game called uh, the incident and uh, yeah sorry, sorry. and i was just kind of wondering um you know obviously the games are fairly different but i wonder what what's the difference on your side from developing a game uh between those two games? Um, so the incident was uh, co-developed with my friend Matt Comey. Um, it was his idea. I did all the graphics for it. We sort of designed the gameplay uh, together, I suppose. Um, it's it's interesting. I mean, they're both games. And when you're designing a game, you you keep certain things in mind. You, 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 you have a start and an end, presumably, unless it's, you know, like an open world type thing. And you... There are all these points at which you're putting yourself in the head of the of the player. So that process is pretty much the same. So in some sense, I would say designing a game is, you know, like largely the same, no matter what kind of a game it is. But then again, the actual work that you're doing couldn't be more different. My work for the incident was basically sitting down in Photoshop and drawing a ton of pixels every day, all day. And then when Matt was sending me a new build of the game, like playing it constantly on the couch, you know, on the bus, uh, you know, just, uh, um, yeah, j j just testing it constantly. Uh, with Black Bar, the process was, most of the game was made uh, in my head, in the sense that I would basically be, uh, actually, so funny story, most of the game was actually designed and written uh, uh, on a family vacation to Disneyland. 
and by that, I don't mean that I was sitting in the hotel room the whole trip. We would just be walking out and I would be thinking about like different ways that I could use the game's mechanic to make different puzzles. And so I would come back to the hotel room, you know, at the end of the day, we would put our daughter to bed and then I would have like a head full of things that I just need to unload. But because Blackwire is so simple, I could just quickly type all of those into the computer and bam, now they work. You know, they need a little bit of tuning, but that's it. Whereas the incident was more of a quick iteration thing of like constantly going like, okay, try this, now try this, now try this, now try this. So yeah, just, just a, a difference in sort of the speed of the process. Yeah. But in both cases, you're thinking, okay, what, what is the player thinking and seeing at this point? What is the likeliest thing that they'll do next? Yeah, it's, that's a pretty dystopian vision to have while wandering around Disney World. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was I was able to remove myself from it enough that it didn't actually influence my mood. Yeah. And, you know, the thing is, Disneyland is like a big game in itself. Yeah. So in, in, in many ways, like, you know, just sort of, you know, standing in, in, in lines for, for uh, Disneyland attractions or, you know, even eating at a restaurant there, you sort of get a lot of ideas for mechanics because a lot of game mechanics are sort of, uh, they're they're almost like like just little machines with knobs and buttons, you know, where you go like, okay, so you know, if you have a thing that's really big and you have a thing that's really small, how do you make the the small thing defeat the big thing? You find the weakness in the big thing, you know. You start thinking in those kinds of abstract terms. So as long as the environment is rich enough, you know, if it stimulates you the way that Disneyland definitely does, yeah, you can you can write a horror movie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, what I what I like about the incident, and I, I, I maybe it's just because it's there are two things and they're next to each other, and you kind of compare them. But compared with Black Bar, um, it's that again, there's not much complexity to it. But within that simplicity, there's a lot of this complexity. Just, I mean, I mean, basically, the premise of the incident is that there's something has happened and there's just stuff falling on this guy and he's got to basically avoid it and keep climbing up all the stuff because it just keeps piling up, piling up. But the stuff that falls almost feels like it's telling a story, you know, where it's like, you've got the, the you know, the, for some reason there's like a fridge falling and then there's, you know, there's like, you know, different, like there's light posts and stuff like that that you're trying to avoid. And it feels like there, and as you're going up, like the, the look is changing a little bit and it feels like there's a story being ripped out of that somehow, even though it's like a very s simple gameplay. Right. Right. Yeah. And yeah. Yeah. The, the objects, as you, as you, as you start out, the objects are very, very everyday things. And then as you keep climbing up higher and higher, they get a little bit loopy until in the end they're, they're almost like fantasy uh, objects. Uh, so yeah, there's it, partly that's because you have to keep upping the stakes, right? For the player, you have to keep making it more awesome. Right. But then partly because on a, in, in some small way, I was thinking like, it's almost like you're getting inside the mind of the person who's having to deal with this and all the stress, like, are they even beginning to imagine all of this? Is this still happening? So yeah, uh, it's super cool. How is, uh, how's designing a game different from designing an app? Um, so this is something I think about a lot. I'm not like a professional game designer. I've worked on two games, and in both cases, I approached it as a complete amateur, you know, as a person who likes to play games, but, you know, I've never taken a class or read a book or anything on it. I don't, like, hang out with game designers. I don't go to conferences. So um, I approach it pretty much the way I approach app design, and I'm not sure if that's, like, a great idea or a terrible idea. But one thing that I've noticed is um, a lot of games, even if they're super fun, tend to fail in areas where apps are good like um 
a good app, a professional app that people use every day to make money, you know, like Transmit or Coda, you know, Panics apps, um, it doesn't like, it doesn't mess with you. It doesn't try to get in your way. It doesn't try to trick you. It's there to help you every step of the way and then get out of, you know, get out of the way of you doing your stuff. And I, I, I wish more games did that. That's part of the reason that Black Bar is so stripped down because it's like, you know what the task is. You have to guess the next word. I'm not going to go distracting you by putting like a rich texture under this or having animated things or having a soundtrack or anything like that. I just want you to focus on the actual problem at hand. The incident is similar in that your main strategy in the incident is to keep moving to get out of the way of the things and then to also make sure that you keep that you stay on top of the pile that's building up. And again, the whole game is geared in that direction you navigate you, you use it just by tilting the device and then tapping anywhere to jump there's no separate jump button there's no separate left right button those are those would be distractions so i try to use those principles from app design and apply them to game design um, beyond that as far as differences between the two um, i've pointed this out a lot to people that game design is in many ways less fun actually and that's because as my friend sean inman has said um, Game design is playing the world's worst game for like a year, and then at the point at which it's a good game, you never play it again. <laughs> because <laughs> you keep playing the broken prototype and then eventually the broken beta, and when there's when it's not broken anymore, you you don't play it anymore <laughs> because it's you, your game. And you just don't want to see it anymore. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and, and plus, yeah, exactly. I mean, with for instance, with the incident, it took about eight months to develop it. Um, at the point when we released it, I could beat the game easily. Others could not. It took a while for others to beat it, but I became so good at it that yeah, it's not that fun for me anymore to play it. Um, so yeah, testing games is incredibly frustrating. Just sort of the, the, the mechanics of it where you're like, okay, well now I have to get to that level and do that thing uh, to even see if there's still a bug or not. That's annoying on its own. And then so much of games is is wondering like okay what is the player thinking now and you have to sort of put yourself in the mind of someone okay i've been playing this game for six hours now and you know and and i did a thing an hour ago that should now pay off okay how do i how do i feel right now and of course you don't feel that way you've been staring at code for four hours so it's just a constant like mode shifting thing that can be a, a little bit aggravating. Game designers are very grumpy people, you'll find, and I think that's because it's it's kind of a, it, it's a bit like trying to direct a play. Uh, in my experience, directors get a little bit, uh, or they have a reputation for being a, a little bit uh, um, uh, frustrated just because it is you're constantly restarting this thing, and yet you have to keep in your mind the whole performance of it from start to finish. Yeah. So. I'd kind of be uh, stupid not to bring this up, but you guys just, uh, you're, you're sort of a game studio now at, at Panic, in a way. Um, yeah, I, I wonder what's, our role is technically publishers, producers maybe, I guess. Um, we just uh, teamed up with uh, um, a few remarkable game people, uh, with um, uh, Jake Rodkin and Sean Vanneman, who worked on the uh, Walking Dead game series, which was a huge hit last year. Uh, and they also managed to to team up with an incredible artist, Ali Moss, who just does amazing illustration work. And they're going to be working on a, on a game together. And um, 
making a game sort of is a big deal and it's it's a good idea to have the like sort of financial and technical support of a larger party which is why people go to a publisher however a lot of publishers don't really give you like the best deal in the world so panic was sort of able to to, to do it on a more kind of friendly basis because we're we're friends with them so yeah we'll be we'll be working with them in some facility uh, uh to make a game that is so cool and just to get those people together to do anything would be interesting, but it's interesting that they're going to be doing, a, you know, especially kind of like, you know, the Walking Dead guys, and then all of a sudden you bring Ali Moss into it. It's just like, I can't even imagine, you know, what the end result of that is, but I'm just, I can't wait. Yeah, I'm, I'm also really excited that the process of making it will be so different than, than, than what my understanding of like a AAA title game development process is, is like. Yeah. So are you, are you going to have any involvement with, uh, with the game? The way I see it, they're such pros at what they do that I don't want to get in their way unless they ask me to. So my personal uh, position will be to just wait until they ask. <laughs> but that said, uh, I, I'd, of course, love to, uh, to work on it in, in any way I can. Sure. I'm sh well, I'm sure you're going to be beta testing stuff along the way at, at, the, at, at the very least. At the very least, yeah. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. And uh, this is this is really great to talk to you about this stuff uh, and just kind of get all your insights to not only uh, you know, UI design in iOS 7, but to all the, the great game stuff you're working on. So thanks a lot. Yeah, thank you very much. It's been fun talking to you. That's our show. Thanks to Nevin for being our guest today. You can see the work he does during the day at Panic by going to panic.com. You can also check out his blog where he wrote that great piece on Apple's new grid icon at mergen.tumblr.com. He's also on Twitter where his username is at Mergen. I should probably point out that his last name is spelled M-R-G-A-N, Mergen. I don't want you to misspell it and get lost. Of course, you should also play his super fun games, Black Bar and The Incident, available now in the iOS App Store. You can subscribe to After School on iTunes. Just go to the iTunes Store on your computer or the podcast app on your mobile device and search for Core 77 or After School. And when you're there, if you like what you're hearing, give us a nice review so other people can find us as well. Also on Core 77, we include show notes that link you to all of the stuff you heard us talking about with Nevin. You can follow me and the After School Podcast on Twitter at After School. And you can follow Core 77 on Twitter at Core 77. After School's theme song is Introducing Today by Disco Lobos. I'm Don Lehman. Talk to you soon. Oh.